Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello, welcome to Digital Lives Asia for Graham Brown and Simon Kemp in the studio, turning stats into stories. Simon, how are you doing? I'm good, Graham. How are you? Very good. I'm excited. As always, waiting for this stat that you're going to drop on us today. <laughs> I love it. I love your enthusiasm for numbers. It's fantastic. <laughs> Where are we, we starting? Get, what are we going to do? We're going to get straight into it today. Let's then. just let's not mess around. Let's just give give the listeners the stat that they've been waiting for, Simon. Okay, so today's number. I feel, I feel a bit like I'm on a game show. Today's <laughs> number: forty four thousand five hundred and twenty is right. the number that we're starting with today. So that is the number of people that will join a social media platform in the next hour. So while people are listening to this show, <laughs> 44,500 people around the world will join social media for the first time. First time. Amazing, isn't it? Right. So that number comes from annual growth to the middle of April, which was 390 million people. So more than a million people every day right. sign up to social media, which just blows my mind. Because if you think about it, there's already significant numbers of people around the world, well over 3 yeah. billion people around the world already using social media. And yet there's a million more of them every day. So, so what are they, are they people that aren't on social media, or are they just sort of people who are now old enough to social use social media? Combination of both, but the bigger driver of the two is the people that are coming online for the first time, especially right. developing nations. So yeah. you've got your grand that's coming online and all that kind of stuff as well. But mm. yeah, the majority of these are people in um, sub-Saharan Africa, they're in developing Southeast Asia, and it's pretty exciting, I think. You know, this is, mm. if you imagine what that's like, getting the internet for the first time, and pretty much the first thing that most people do when they get the internet these days, especially in those places, is they sign up for a social media platform because yeah. for most people in these countries, that is the internet. Yeah. You know, yeah. The stuff that it was through social media. So I don't know. I mean, I, I get a, the impression that a lot of people, especially in first world countries, they sort of roll their eyes when they say the first thing that people do is sign up for social media. But you imagine the world that that opens. Suppose you are living in a, let's call it a tier three city or a town in Indonesia. You've just got to the stage where you've got your first smartphone with a data plan and you're connecting to the internet on your device. You've probably done it in an internet cafe. You've probably used a friend's device. You maybe had access at school, whatever else. But suddenly you have a world of new adventures and opportunities and information in your pocket. Mm. I just see that as the most amazing thing. Well, there was the announcement recently, Facebook. I saw the, the F8 conference that they're, mm. they're, they're talking about and uh, Mark Zuckerberg standing up and I didn't see, I, didn't, I haven't gone fully into it, but now they're introducing dating on Facebook. So yeah. you wonder, <laughs> you know, I know we talked a little bit about this before, but in particular, like you talk about Indonesia and these tier three cities, right? I mean, just opening up the world because th there isn't that kind of mobility, is it? Now, now it's going to be through these platforms. I mean, they must have done that with these countries in mind because I know the big push is into those markets, isn't it? That's where they're kind of like still got people who aren't on Facebook. Yeah. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Well, I think there's, there's a massive range of growth opportunities that Facebook, Facebook could be exploring. And I think the timing of announcing a dating site might have been a little bit unfortunate given the recent yeah. concerns around privacy. But you can totally see why that 
kind of service on Facebook makes a lot of sense because dating should be about the interests that you have and that kind of stuff. And, you know, growing up in Scotland like I did mm. back in the dark ages before the Internet, we didn't we didn't really do things that way. We would go out to a bar and we would be in a darkened room and it would be loud music and you'd probably have had too much to drink and you were supposed to make good educate <laughs> A fumble, as it was known. Facebook did, Facebook did dating, did it? It had all those apps which sort of appeared... Yeah, years back which were kind of pulled off and it had like hot or not or oh, yeah, something yeah, exactly. social or whatever which is kind of a bit like that wasn't it which is a bit like you know a bit fun and bit you, would, you would rate people wouldn't you like you would yeah. rate them as like ugly good looking whatever yeah whereas this I think is a little bit more of the I would I, I would like to think apparently it's designed for more older users this right. is what I was reading I don't know if this is in any way true but that's the well why not <laughs> you know but I think it's the, the sort of the 25 plus, apparently they're older, makes me worry. <laughs> but yeah, so they've, they've got this in mind. Now, that's a really interesting development. So you're right. If you look at places like Southeast Asia, for example, so let's go back to our sort of not not tier one cities in a place like Indonesia or Thailand or even the Philippines. I think that it's a very different approach culturally to dating in each of those three places let alone compared to places like europe mm. or the us so i think this sort of thing is really quite interesting it apparently it's not going to introduce you to people that are part of your social network already so it, oh, wouldn't, really? introduce, oh. it wouldn't introduce you to your own friends which i totally understand why but <laughs> part of that kind of makes me come family <laughs> awkward uh, that could be really really dodgy couldn't it yeah uh, but you know i think it was right that that sort of Mm. that opportunity now so they're bringing that kind of thing in but you mentioned that there's still quite a few people that don't use facebook when, when you look at the actual numbers five billion people still don't and admittedly a lot of those are young people or people of the old the age of 100 and whatever else so it, it's not like we're expecting facebook to have 100 percent penetration of the world mm. but you know 2.2 billion people use it five billion don't so there's still plenty of scope in there for growth what was happening to those um, what's happened to the people that have been on for a while that now, now with all what's going on in the last few months, I hear oh. a lot of people saying people are leaving Facebook, but I always hear this and yeah, and is it true? It never seems to sort of manifest, does it? <laughs> so there was the big delete Facebook movement with right. its own hashtag. Um, so I did a lot of digging into that over the last few weeks. There was about 36 hours where people paused refreshing the latest version of the app after that, everything went back to normal. The number of Facebook users has actually gone up. <laughs> so 67 million people started using Facebook since the start of Delete the year. Facebook. So nobody nobody deleted it except here is the one interesting stat. So um, I mentioned, I think, on the show that we did most recently. So number three, I was going to say a month ago, but it wasn't because we, we got lost in timing. But the report that I published just a couple of days after we recorded that show, that mm. uh, shows that for the very first time in the seven or eight years that I've been collecting this data, the number of teenagers using Facebook did actually go down. Right. So this is the first time the data has supported the story that the media have been reporting forever. But there was a slight drop in the number of 13 to 17 year olds using Facebook between January and the middle of April. So mm. it's it's not massive. We're talking about sort of two to three percent decrease right. but still meaningful because it's the first time that it's gone down however here's the interesting bit right in the same time period well well more than double that started using it in the 45 plus age group 
Hmm. Number of people that they lost in the 13 to 17, they more than made up for in the older demographics. I use that without any disrespect for the over 45. So well, that's me. <laughs> I'm, I'm on I'm the cusp. So, so there's a slight decrease in teenagers and a slight increase in older people. That's kind of what you. Th- that, that's kind of how you think it may develop, but that. Obviously, long term, that's a problem for Facebook, isn't it? If that continues, that's the sort of like the the, the basketball going through the hosepipe, isn't it? That, that demographic, isn't it? That's. I don't of- think it is actually. I think that in terms of that particular platform itself, it means that it does have a relatively finite sort of life scale. Uh, what's the word? Life Span. duration. Life, that one. Yeah. Life span. Thank you. <laughs> Terrible. Um, you know, it, it, if you're not bringing younger people in to feed the ongoing sort of growth of the platform, then it's going to stagnate and probably eventually pass out. But mm. if you look at the rest of Facebook's portfolio, you've got well, there you go, right? yeah. massively popular. You've got WhatsApp, which doesn't publish that much data, but one and a half billion people around the world using WhatsApp. And there's a very good chance that a lot of those are in the younger age demographic as well. So as Facebook Inc., I, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg's worrying about that. Mm. He's got a PR problem on his hands at the moment, but in terms of user numbers, not a massive concern, I don't think. No, no. He's and considering the size of it, it's not really... They've done pretty well, pr They have. And the fact that it's still growing, I mean, it's been public, if you like, so it's been beyond the dorm rooms of colleges in the US. It's been since 2007. So we're looking at 11 years here. That's mm. In digital years, you're looking at a good half of the web yeah think about it so 11 years prior to that was 96 when that was the real first time that the web became a bit more than just nerdy geeks like you and me so facebook's been around for a good half of the the real natural life of the 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 web for the masses and it's not going anywhere anytime fast it may go into a steady decline but i just because it's become the fabric of so many people's lives I don't see it falling off a cliff. You, no. You'll use it, you know, you'll use it one day less a month for a while. You, you're already using it less in terms of the amount of time on each session. That's clear. The data's been telling us that for a while. Um, you may check in slightly less frequently than you used to, but you're still using it. Mm. Well, I'll give my own example here. Obviously, I'm on Facebook. I've tried to stay away from it, but, you know, moving around and living all over the place like yourself, you've got family all over the world. So you have to be on Facebook because it's the only way that family can communicate with you, right? So I'm on Facebook and I can't be off Facebook. I think I may have deactivated an account like some people have done just to experiment, but you get pulled back in by cousins and what have you. And then, um, so I've sort of scaled back on Facebook and then, you know, I started using Instagram about years ago, got really into that, deactivated my account off Instagram. Now I'm on WhatsApp. It's like, you know, wherever I go, I'm I'm part of that whole portfolio. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, they've, they've built a very good understanding of what utility looks like for people. And sure enough, they've not necessarily grasped the sentiment around things like privacy, because Mm. I think a lot of them perhaps, you know, they they see all of this as why wouldn't you want better advertising? And I, I, you know, it's weird. I kind of look at them and I go, you're right. Unfortunately, the advertisers using the platform have not used that data to their advantage, and they still serve us the same crap that they always have done, which so, is disappointing. So, so what does this mean? I mean, with what's going on with Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, you're mm. right in the middle of all that with digital, because that yep. the fallout from that is going to impact all of social media for the, you know the next generation. So, you know, 
summarise it for us if you can, Simon. So, I, I just find it fascinating. I mean, I speak to average folks on the street, users, you know, sort of typical consumer types, if you like, and you ask them what they think about this, and admittedly it's not a representative sample, but they're just like, oh, yeah, it's annoying. I don't like the fact that Facebook... Yeah. Blah. And then three seconds later, they're telling you about this thing that they saw on Facebook this morning. And you're like, so it doesn't really bother you. You're like, oh, well, you know, it's a bit like spilling toothpaste. It's like, oh, that's frustrating. I'll clean mm. that up. <laughs> it's well, maybe it's like, you know, for the previous generation, it's like complaining about traffic, but you, you couldn't live without a car. Yeah, it feels very much like that. It's sort of, it's just something that you accept. There's, there's not an alternative that quite delivers the same thing and i'm not pretending that in any way people are addicted to facebook in the way that a lot of these media stories make out i think that we may be addicted to notifications and affirmation in general i don't think that's a uniquely facebook story but what fascinates me most is that like i was saying there was that 36 hour blip when people paused updating their apps but then people went straight back to updating it and using it and in fact it went back to levels even higher than it was before the scandal <laughs> broke because people hadn't updated it and they were just like oh but actually i still need it so you know you get the media telling big stories about it you get quite a lot of marketing industry pundits talking about it but, but the, has the, it changed like for example i mean the 36 hour blip was mm. an interesting experiment and maybe just an ex- a rage against the machine, but has it yeah. changed people's attitudes in privacy terms? Whether it's changed them or whether it's surfaced some things that were bubbling under that people didn't really know about enough or didn't really express or didn't think about, maybe. I think there's definitely an issue with that. So being aware of the fact that these platforms do collect all of your data, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or whoever mm. it may be, you know, they, most of the apps on your phone collect a huge amount of data when you use them, whether they're social media or not. And I don't think most people know that. And the level of data that it can collect is quite astounding now the, the different thing with something like facebook is that it also has ways of when i say monitoring it sounds really sinister but you know they they are able to see the things that you do on sites that are not facebook so anything on the internet with a like mm. button it feeds information back to the mothership as well so even if i'm looking at something on forbes.com and it's got a like button on it then facebook sees what i'm doing on that page as well mm. which is quite interesting the pixel yeah, and you know, they've got all sorts of very clever little wormholes that transport data back, basically. Um, mm. But, yeah, to your question of is it going to change people's behavior, only gradually and only slightly from what I can see. This is not a watershed moment where suddenly we're all using um, two-step friction and stuff like that. I think it's, it's, it's important that people become better educated when it comes to understanding privacy and also just making sure that their devices are safe mm. but i do think that the media have slightly jumped on this with a bit of schadenfreude and gone yay we're gonna have a poke at facebook because they basically made our lives a bit more difficult so we'll have a stab at them mm. so I, I would be wary uh, reading all of these stories as to think is there an ulterior motive behind this because like i said the the, the behaviors of the average person on the street haven't really changed but there is something that we do need to look at, and that is whether or not the advertisers themselves have been spooked. Hmm. Fortunately, as you might expect, I've got some data on that. Yes. So the lovely folks at LocalWise, who are a social media analytics firm, they have been tracking this data for me for quite a while now. So they look at things like engagement rates, reach rates, but they also look at the number of pages across their incredible sample. So we're talking tens of thousands of pages here on Facebook. How many of them are using paid media and what 
contribution that paid media makes to their total reach. And what's really interesting is there's been quite a big drop in Q1 in terms of the number of pages that were using paid media compared to January. Mm. So that may be part of an ongoing trend, but my suspicion is that it's not because the way that the newsfeed algorithm on Facebook has changed, if companies want their page posts to reach their audience, they increasingly need to use page, paid media. Mm. So I think most companies know that. If they want to get in front of their audience, they're going to have to pay for it, which means they do need to use some kind of paid support. So those adverts, basically. Mm. And the difference between the number of pages that are using it, but then also the amount of money that they're spending. So Facebook just uh, published or released their earnings announcement for first quarter, which was obviously January to the end of March. They announced some pretty impressive growth in terms of ad investments, but they didn't break that down. And if you think back to when the big Cambridge Analytica story broke, it was only the last two weeks of that period. So you've got a good sort of two and a half months before anything happened, where everybody was aware that because of the announcement that Mark Zuckerberg made at the beginning of the year about we want to focus on friends and family and not pages. Obviously, a lot of big brands then realized they had to dump a lot of money into Facebook to maintain their presence. Mm. So I'm going to be really interested to see what happens in the next round. My suspicion is that if you could break it down on a day-by-day basis, you would see a fairly meaningful drop in the amounts that were being spent on Facebook advertising around the middle of March through until probably the end of April. But my guess is it's going to go back up again because a lot of, especially small businesses, will realize that much that they don't like what's going on with Facebook, they don't really have many other practical options when it comes to reaching their audiences. So it comes back to your, I don't like traffic, but I still need to get from A to B, so I'm still going to go and sit in a traffic jam. So so what are we talking about here? You talked about Facebook pages, so you're talking about... Mm old school fan pages right so you're talking about that and using the the boost post stroke facebook ads right yes okay and you're saying that has dropped the number of pages sorry the number of pages using facebook paid advertising has dropped yes so the percentage of pages that are using it now sits at 19.1 percent i am just as we speak loading up (laughs) the other set of data but yeah, so the, the figures that I'm going to, about to quote to you are from sort of the full year, if you like, of 2017. And mm. I've inevitably ended up the wrong chart. Keep talking amongst yourselves. When yeah. I tell well, I'm, I'm interested because, you know, I, I've used paid advertising on Facebook. I've had Facebook pages and uh-huh. grown those pages. And so, I, you know, I got in quite early with all that. So I yeah. saw people pile in. I saw the opportunity. Uh, you know, the people who doubled down on that made quite a bit of progress with it especially yeah. on the f- facebook ad size you know at the beginning people just kind of learning it they'd come across from google in some cases twitter they understood that facebook advertising was a lot cheaper than yes. google and to a degree cheaper than twitter as well but i think that arbitrage is sort of lost in the market now it's, it's disappeared like i don't know it seems that the, it's very again this is very ad hoc but it seems that people i talk to now you know, now they say, for example, your Facebook advertising. I know people. I know somebody who spends eighty thousand dollars a month on Facebook advertising. You wow. know, it's like that. That's the kind of people now who are advertising on Facebook. So maybe you know, if you go back to that Facebook pages hmm. data, maybe the reason is is all those kind of like small guys or single, you know, person companies had Facebook pages. Now they're just saying, yeah. well, it ain't worth it anymore. We're just not getting anywhere. Because these guys are coming in spending 80 grand 
and they're yeah, just dominating the market. Yeah, there, there's very likely a degree of that. So I have the stats in front of me now. So yeah, let's do the, it. Av- the average across the whole of 2017 percentage of pages using page media 22.1 percent, and then in Q1 of 2018 that number has dropped to 19.1 so that's just what 300 basis points drop so i don't know what that is relatively i can't do that math off the top of my head but that's probably 10 to 12 percent drop that's pretty significant yeah more more yeah yeah so um that you know that that's the number of pages then in terms of the the benefit that they got from their investments so the average paid reach versus total reach of a page in the sort of average for 2017 was 26.8%. That's now dropped to 24.1%. So, again, a fairly meaningful drop there. What, what, but I what think, was that when you said, what's the data? What's that? So, what, what it represents. Yeah. So, this is the sort of the, this is the percentage of total reach that was delivered by paid reach. So, in 2017, it was 26.8%. And then it's dropped to 24.1%, right. so, which is interesting. That means that more pages are relying on organic stuff now. Right, so you're right. actually- not a lot more, though, compared to the drop in the, those who are actually not advertising. Yeah. I, 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 speculate that is, I speculate people, the small companies are just being, or the individuals being priced out of Facebook advertising. I don't think it's as good, as good a deal as it once was. That window's closed. It may be more challenging to be able to afford yeah. it because it works in an auction. And you're right, if people are coming in and, you know, these are, I'm guessing, sort of medium-sized businesses are dropping $80,000 a month yeah. on advertising, that yeah. is going to push out your small blog shop. Yeah. Um, it is important to note that these numbers represent all kinds of pages across all sorts of different things. So this includes your sort of a page with three fans, of which my mom and my dad are two, and they like every post I do. And then also right the way through to, like, massive pages like, you know, Unilever pages and P&G pages and stuff like that. So mm. there's a good – and it's also got things like celebrity pages. So if you like Cristiano Ronaldo and you love everything that he posts, then that's obviously going to impact some of these numbers right. as well. But do those guys need to advertise? I mean, that's – No, but some of the big, big brands do. Right. And I think it's quite interesting when you look at – some of these brands and how they make their business models. So, you know, Tasty, the guys that do the cooking videos. Yeah. The most addictive thing on Facebook. I'm a massive fan. So, oh, yeah. I'm going to be upfront <laughs> about this. Full disclosure, I love Tasty Japan in particular. Um, but their business model is fascinating. So, they get, th- I was reading recently, because I wrote a case study about it, as you do, um, 3 billion organic views a month right. on Facebook alone. And their business model is that. They, you know, they pump all of this stuff out for free to the viewer, but they then do sponsored posts where a brand will be featured in the video. So whether it's mm. an ingredient brand or if it's a, you know, somebody that's making cooking utensils that wants to be featured as well. So it's really interesting how that works because you know they've they've built this really good organic mm. machine, if you like, and it is content right. that you can't resist. But, that, but that's sort that- of native advertising. That's not of that's not, you know, like paid advertising by that. Mm brand on that channel they're they're just product placement aren't they yeah and i think it's an incredibly sensible way of looking this kind of channel because if you're interrupting somebody with things that they're not interested in then you're interrupting them and that's bad manners Mm. it's not social this is the funny thing you know the clues in the name don't be anti-social on social and yet you've got people like tasty where it's very clear that people find these things ridiculously appealing i still can't put my finger on why but I love them as well. Mm. But, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to watch a good video if there's product placement in it. And I'm, I'll admit, even though I'm a cynical marketer myself, 
that stuff does influence me. I can yeah. look and go, yeah, good choice by that brand. Well done. <laughs> well done them. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm curious as well because I don't follow, or I don't think I follow any pages on Facebook anymore. Mm. And anymore, that's interesting. Yeah, used to. yeah, and just like you know, I just turned them all off. I don't. I think if you look at my Facebook feed, there's actually nothing on it. I've deliberately done that just because it's a distraction. But here's yeah. the thing: it's like you know, I I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. I spend a lot of time on YouTube, as an example. Mm-hmm. So for me, but you know, there, unless I'm missing a point, I don't see much advertising on there, right? Obviously, it's you know, it's in like you say, like product placement or at the end of or at the beginning. But that's quite interruptive. Yeah. So I, I find. That- I'll be honest, I find advertising on YouTube massively frustrating, especially because I get the same advert a yeah. hundred times a day. So It's like TV yeah. advertising, isn't it? It's sort of, you know... Like- just, but, yeah, at least at TV advertising, they sort of a little bit more sensible in the way they buy it, but I can watch five videos in a row and get the same fucking advert every time. It drives yeah. me insane. So I had a bit of a shout. There are two brands that are particularly bad at this, Grammarly and Wix. And yes, I'm naming names, but they are <laughs> just just irritating. You've right. got to learn about ad frequency, right? If I haven't clicked on your ad in the first hundred times you've shown it to me, I'm never going to click on it. So stop yeah. wasting your money fucking showing it to me. Urgh. Anyway, you mentioned that you'd stopped following I thought you were going to say Ty Lopez and his Lamborghinis. <laughs> no, fortunately. Well, he's, he's disappeared now. Anyway. I'm not being annoyed by Ty Lopez, fortunately. You mentioned that you've stopped following pages. I have some stats for you. Do you yeah, believe okay. it? I've got some numbers that might be Let's of interest here. Now, these are particularly interesting. I'm going to offer these numbers without any analysis. Right. Okay. So, this is lifetime global average. Okay. Mm-hmm. Guess how many pages the average Facebook user in their entire lifetime has liked? At any time, not not at this particular point. So total number of pages liked. I, I don't know whether Facebook it is. Oh, my, uh, on it. Yeah. So I'm get, let's let's assume for argument's sake that it is the number that they currently have liked. Oh, currently. Yeah. Oh, I don't know because some people have got thousands and they don't do anything about it. I'm going to say randomly forty. One. <laughs> no. Yes, and this is from. I'm going to be an average one. Average one. Well, it's a median rather than an average. Right. Sorry, I correct. My, my own so, so, so what there must be just like lots and lots of people who've not liked anything correct which is fascinating it means right. that they have they discovered that function yet i just don't think they bother really because if you think about it, an awful lot of brands no longer actually advertise the fact that you can like their right, page right, right. it's not a thing anymore and if you think about the number yeah. of people that have come online facebook growth it's sort of exponential. So more people have come online in the last few years and it's just not a thing anymore to like pages because nobody's investing in it because they know that even if you like their page, you still have to pay yeah. to reach them as a brand. So why would you bother? Let me continue with those stats, right? So that's the median number of pages that people have liked. In the last 30 days, the number of posts that people have liked, so any kind of post, whether it's your friends, family, a brand, whatever else, women have liked 13 posts as a median men nine Mm. but this is the one i'm offering without judgment i'm going to ask you for your reaction on this in the last 30 days that was 13 for men and nine for women in terms of posts that you've liked from friends and family and whatever else in the last 30 days the number of facebook ads that people have clicked on 12 for women and nine for men Hmm. it's clicked on clicked on clicked on I find that quite interesting. Mm, why? How many times in the last month have you clicked on an ad? Not knowingly. 
<laughs> and I think this is interesting. So there are, I, I regularly get frustrated with people that tell me that they have three friends in the world and their friends don't do any of the things that I report in my numbers. So I'm not going to be that guy that says, my friends don't click on these things. <laughs> I personally very rarely click on an ad on Facebook. But that, if you look at the way that those numbers are then represented, you do have people like you and me who rarely click. Mm. Therefore, there's got to be people that are clicking on ads every five minutes. All right. So I'm going to offer some perspective here. Mm-hmm. And this is firsthand perspective. So um, some time ago, I was uh, working on a project where we were advertising, um, were advertising some products which were aimed at investors. Let's just mm-hmm. say that, right? And um, without going into detail. So um, we ran some Facebook ads and um we spent we, we just sort of like did a, a a small scales test so you know we do like 50 bucks 100 bucks you know mm-hmm. like 100 bucks a day for a few days just to test it out so you don't like break the bank spent all the money lots and lots of clicks nobody signed up for everything what's going on so mm-hmm. we had a look at the data and um what we found and this was really interesting is that there was a, a really hardcore group of people clicking on ads and that hardcore group of people was coming from Indonesia. And mm-hmm. so my business partner was in Indonesia. So what was happening was, is that they were just sort of seeing these ads on their phone, just clicking them and not doing anything. They weren't sort of following through. <laughs> and it was interesting because once we stopped targeting Indonesia, and maybe some other Southeast Asian places as well, then the the numbers completely changed. Like, mm. like the clicks dropped like 90, 95%, but mm. the actual, you know, the, the click-throughs, so the results, if you like, at the end, the goals improved significantly. So that was yeah. really interesting. So, you know, to answer your point about who's actually clicking, it's the Indonesians. They're the, they're the people <laughs> who are clicking. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Around the world, there are pockets of countries where you do get that. So Egypt is similar. You get, well, I don't know whether this is true today. I ran yeah. similar tests probably a few years ago now, but Egypt was very big on clicking on adverts as well. And I think it, it's really useful sets of data there because you need to be looking at these in your own sets of data as an advertiser, just as you did, and say, this is this is odd. This doesn't follow the patterns we'd expect. And I think there's there's a lot of conversation in the marketing world at the moment about whether you should or should not target digital ads. So there's been sort of people like P&G saying that they've been targeting too much and they've therefore been wasting huge amounts of money and they need to go more broad. What does that mean, not target digital ads? Yeah, so they, they apparently they were going right into incredible amounts of detail. So they wanted 32-year-old women living in a right. city who'd liked Rihanna and Jennifer Lopez or something. like I don't know. I, I didn't do the campaign, so I don't know exactly what it was. But we're talking about using multiple kinds of targeting factors in right, the same right. Real granularity, yeah. Yeah, expecting that you would be able to create then very targeted kinds of mm. creative for them that would be more influential. And apparently, because... The more you, more factors you add in your targeting, generally the more expensive each of those placements is from Facebook's system. Mm. Not quite sure why, because ultimately it's still delivering it to the same person. But there we go. That's how their system works. Um, and I think it, that P&G said that that didn't work for them. I'm, I'm not convinced that it was the approach that didn't work. I think there were there was more to it than that. Mm. But 
So what's the trend at the moment? I mean, you work a lot with brands as well, especially for the agents of the brand. So the ad agencies, the media yeah. agencies and so on. I mean, if we go back years ago when I was in that space, everybody was kind of piling in to Facebook. We have to have a Facebook yeah. fan page. You know, I mean, we need a million likes. Find us an agency that's going to get us a million likes. That That's sort of, okay, that's where I left it. So where yeah. are we now? What, what, what are people thinking? What are, what are brands talking about? Are they a bit more clever now? The honest answer is no, sadly. They just, they've moved on to different right. sets of give me a million of this instead. Um, this is not meant in any way disrespectfully. I think there is an incredible amount of misinformation and poor guidance offered by so-called experts out there. And it's very difficult for a marketer who has to deal with all sorts of stuff like making sure that the, the product is available on shelf, for example. Yeah. So a marketer's job is not just about putting ads on Facebook. And in all honesty, if they get five minutes a week to do that properly, then they're doing quite well. Um, but I still hear the biggest question is how do we improve our reach on Facebook? And it's yeah. like, it goes back to exactly what you were saying. I can get lots of people to click on my ad in Indonesia, but they're not people that are going to invest. Yeah. Reach doesn't mean anything at all. It's, it's simply like, you know, saying, oh, big numbers. And you go, okay, how many of them were relevant? And you say, oh, I targeted it. And it's like, okay, I have. I think that the biggest mistake at the moment is relying on demographic targeting within digital as though yeah. somehow all millennials were the same. It's just, <laughs> it's patently obvious that they're not. Yeah. You know, I mean, even, even if you've got brothers and sisters, you're different from them as individuals, even though you're part of the same family. And it's that kind of stuff that marketers need to sort of step back from all the nonsense that they're being fed, whether it's sort of unscrupulous research companies or dodgy ad traders they just need to step back and go logically as a human being does this sound like a good thing to do yeah. so I when i first started doing facebook ads um i was doing a lot of work for djs you know so these were people that wanted to reach out to a more global audience so that they could do their whole i'm an international superstar i'm traveling the world playing to fans everywhere which you know it's a fantastic thing you've got these really enthusiastic incredibly talented kids basically that wanted to just get their music out to people around the world and i was buying ads based on if this dj plays this kind of music there are other djs that play that kind of music i will target people that like those pages already so dead straightforward affinity marketing mm. i'm not pretending in any way that that's clever it's not but it's an awful lot more sensible than saying I think that 18 to 24-year-old males will like this kind of music because, you know, some of them are going to like techno and some of them are going to like indie and some of them are going to like classical. It's like... Well, the problem not? there, isn't it? I mean, you've got that sort of old-school age-sex location thing going on, mm. right? Like we're in the chat rooms again. But it's like, you know, you've got that, but it's kind of... On top of that, you have that whole sort of narrative in media about millennials and gen y i mean you know i was yeah. in that space and i used to you know rage against that on a regular basis to say people say oh, yeah but tell us about generation z and i think it's a, it's a real issue isn't it because people want to divide all that up and say yes well you know you look at the workplace there's so much written about millennials in the workplace it's bs you know it's like we're trying to create these different species <laughs> you know, and when you start giving that to marketers, no wonder they're going into Facebook and saying, right, we have to target millennials, folks, or we have to target Generation Z, you know, only up yeah. to 19. No, nobody above 19. But, you know, you're right. It's the affinity stuff. I mean, you look at the most successful brands, you know, I think of things, one brands that have really cut through, like Red Bull, for example, yep. you know, age four to 94. You know, right. what's the age demographic there? I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's an average, but there's an average of everybody alive in the planet, right? doesn't mean yeah. anything. 
And, you know, they've, they've done the sensible approach of what is it that we can do with our marketing investment to add value to people's lives. So instead of interrupting them to try and get them to spend money on products that may or may not improve their lives, let's at least use our marketing budget to, in their case, inspire people. So if mm-hmm. you look at almost all of Red Bull's marketing, admittedly they still do the occasion of just random TV advert with a can in it. Um, mm. But the majority of it is that amazing content that you see on things like YouTube where you've got guys jumping off of cliffs with parachutes doing clever shit. And it's just like, I would quite, ha- every time I've got to write a case study about Ribble, I've got to allow myself an extra three hours just to watch the yeah. videos because they're so good. Yeah. And, you know, you've got plenty of other brands that are good at this as well. So you've got a lot of the sports brands are really good. GoPro, amazing. Well, yeah, yeah. they were the originals um, really in that space on YouTube, right? Yeah. and. I find it also greatly entertaining that if you think about our soap opera, soap operas were originally devised by soap brands. Yeah. You think, well, how did we how do we lose our way to get into the world we've got now, and particularly in things like shampoo advertising, where literally you take the logo off, it's exactly the same. There's a back shot of some girl taking a piece of string out of hair, and it all cascades beautifully in the shiny hair. It's just like what was the piece cares? of string? It had to be folded. It's just it's make sure you've got to have the piece of string to make sure that it all sort of falls yeah. in a certain kind of way. And it's just like they all look exactly problem. the same. Yeah. Sorry, I'm very judgmental, but it's like seriously, nobody wants to watch that shit. Why no. are you wasting your money doing it again and again as a brand? When but don't don't, don't marketers get lost on that? And I don't want to yeah. dwell too long, but on that but I want to get this off my chest but don't doesn't that world of creatives get lost on that I mean, especially when you have sort of like you know the Cairns Lions and the Palm Door and all that sort of yeah. stuff you know they see that their lives as you know being creators of advertising and so on you know they see themselves almost like up there with directors of movies right you know they're out there creating this content they could be a lot of the time there's a question of whether they've got the uh, the ideas. If you could really go out and make a movie, go out and make a movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> but then at the same time, I think that the biggest challenge is that you've even got clients that have got motivation to do that. But when they take it to the finance team or when they take it to the CEO, the CEO's like, I don't want to do anything that daring. Yeah. Just give me more of the same because, you know, it's it's like people used to say, you're not going to get fired for hiring IBM. It's like... <laughs> yeah, a lot of advertising is just ticking a box rather than yeah, making right. a difference. Exactly. Um, and especially when it comes to digital, it's like we're on Facebook and you're like, what are you doing on it? And then they show you and you're like, you're not, you are right. on it. You're That's absolutely right. You turned up, but you got it wrong. <laughs> so, so what happens with, like you say, with P&G as an example, mm. that now they're saying, okay, we need to back off a little bit. What, what does that mean now? Because obviously what they do will ripple throughout the industry because that yeah. will impact all their agencies. And they, yeah. they probably have about 10 different agencies on, you know, in-house yeah. working on their stuff. So what does that mean? So a lot of this is related to, there's a, a book that came out a few years ago called How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp, who's a professor down in Australia. It's an absolutely fascinating book. So if any marketers listening haven't read it, go and grab yourself a coffee. A copy, even. Get a coffee and a coffee. Um, but it, it's quite provocative because it, it basically says an awful lot of the stuff that we have as accepted wisdom within the advertising and marketing worlds is actually not backed up by data mm. whatsoever. So he has this story that runs through most of his research, which is it's all about salience. So you basically need to be a salient brand. You need to be reaching the right people on a regular basis. But he says that you don't really need to target if you're a mass brand. So if you're ice cream or if you're shampoo, targeting isn't really 
necessarily the best idea. You basically just want to be in front of as many people as possible. Now, there's a lot in the book that I kind of look at and I'm thinking, I can see different ways of interpreting the why, data. Why? why? Why is targeting? Is it because targeting is too expensive that yeah, it, because the payoff doesn't make sense? Right. If, you're, if you're targeting, the theory goes that you've got to create different bits of creative for different audiences right. with different motivations. And that gets complicated in terms of time and effort and all that kind of stuff. And it, in all honesty, most of the time, most of these things don't need carefully crafted messages. It's like it's ice right. cream. I want to put it in front of me. But is that is that now, because we live in an age where people find stuff, they go out and look for stuff in the old days, you know, you, you would target a teen magazine, for example, because yes. that's what teens read. But now like we said about those sort of affinity models, like people don't live in that world, do they? I mean, if I want no. to go watch Red Bull on YouTube, I go and watch it. And my yeah. son may watch it as well. And, you know, my grandma may watch it as well if she's into it, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like now we only exist in our little channels. So going Correct. back to the point about demographic targeting, it doesn't make sense because people seek out what's interesting, right? Yeah. Now, th- this is an interesting one because you, you raise it, you're your gram. So my parents are retired um, and they are both big fans of this guy, Danny McCaskill, who is a, he does amazing stuff on mountain bikes. Yeah, no, I've bike, seen him. Yeah? You know it, right? So I, I, I might be wrong here. I think he does stuff with Red Bull. <laughs> this is where yeah, the, the it's Red Bull or Monster, goes, I think. Oh, slightly awkward. Get my branding incorrect here. But regardless, they are, you know, they, they love his stuff and they watch his full-length movies as well as the little 10-minute things that he little. These, these shorts, if you like, that they, he uploads to things like YouTube. You as a marketer know that I love that content, right? And the the interesting thing is, what what are you going to do with my parents that's different to what you do to yeah. me? We both have those interests, but my parents are not going to get on a bike. Even if they want to, they're not mm. going to be able to do that stuff. Let's face it, none of us are going to be able to do what he does. But I may be persuaded to buy a bike because I'm having a midlife crisis. You may persuade some teenagers that, no, really, they should go outside and do this. And even if they don't succeed, then they're going to go out and have some fun. But it, it's this idea of you've got a common interest but that's a start point not an end point and i think this is where an awful lot of affinity marketing mm. breaks down this is again this is going to sound judgmental and it's unfair because i don't have all the facts and i don't but say it but the pg p and g stuff an awful lot of the time they look at an individual result and they make broad generalizations out of it and it's not just png there's lots of mass marketers that do this too they look at the fact that they spent a lot of money on targeting an awful lot of ads and they didn't necessarily see better results from it and i then turn around and go but the trouble is that the creative that you then delivered to those people probably was not properly tailored to the mm. individual at the moment that you were trying to reach them and sure enough you wasted a huge amount of time and money trying to deliver individual messages to lots of people around the world but if the creative's still dull it's dull it doesn't matter yeah. and apologies yeah. if somebody's listening was working on that i know there's a lot more to it than that but no amount of being in the right place at the right time will correct the wrong message mm. i think it's that that's the problem is that you've got to have a good balance at the same time the right message at the wrong time and place is equally wasted mm. So I think this is where marketing gets stuck is it gets excited about, oh, shiny new object, we've got a new platform. Let's let's all rush into Snapchat and do stuff. But if you're still showing me the same TV out of the girl with a string letting her hair down, it's like, uh, no, no, mm. no, 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 no. You, it's the point. Yes, the audience is here. No, this is not the right time and place. And 
when you actually look at the marketing that makes the most sense, sure enough, it can be beautifully shot and they could have invested a huge amount of money, but most of it's incredibly simple in terms of what it's trying to tell you. So I was actually having a, a conversation with another um, group of marketers yesterday about ads that we remember and marketing that we remember from growing up and the ones that still influence our behavior today. And it's that, that you, you remember ads that you loved that didn't influence your behavior, and then there are ads that did. And in all honesty, I can only really name two or three brands that genuinely influenced my behavior through their marketing. And the one that keeps on coming up again and again is Guinness. Mm. And it's fascinating that you know, you've got this brand that was always of the moment, you know, great zeitgeist in terms of their creativity. And, you know, to a lesser extent, at the same time, you had um, Levi's, who did mm -hmm. amazing ads in the UK back in the 80s. And then you had Wrigley's, who also did very similar sort of great music, great soundtracks, feel-good stuff. But, but those eras are over. Yeah. And if you think about the brands that are able to achieve that now, what what, what is the salient advertising? Because right. nobody sits down for sort of scheduled TV anymore. No, no. But th those ads... It, you know, existed in a time when they created conversation, right? Mm. These are brands worth talking about in the sense that, you know, for example, if you saw that Levi's ad, then you talked to your mates at school about it the next day. Right. So it created a conversation. So there's no, nothing different today in terms of the way marketing creates conversation. It's just it's a different platform. But the trouble is that very little marketing today is designed to inspire conversation. Right, it's right. on conversational platforms, and it's missed the point entirely. Exactly. Well, isn't this that, is, the, like you say, like the, the targeting side, targeting really is not the, the raison d'etre. It's the optimization, isn't it, really? Targeting yeah. should be like an optimization of the campaign, not the campaign itself. And maybe that's by giving people all these tools, like you say, all that sort of real granularity, people have thought, okay, that's actually what it's about. But it isn't. It's about no, the it's message. Not. And it's like, my, so the analogy I always give to clients on this one is it's like when you think back to, especially if you're a boy, think back to when you were a teenager and you got a girl's phone number and somehow that was magic. And it's like, until you use that phone number, until you right. do something meaningful with it, it's got no value. Yeah. It's just pure fantasy in you your mind. Right. And I think this, this is what an awful lot of marketers do. They're, we're on Facebook. And it's like, great. What yeah. are you doing with it? We're on Twitter. Good. What next? And I think it's, we're, we're missing the big opportunity. These are people. They live lives and they have dreams. How do mm. we engage them? How do we add value to them? And what's going to make a difference to their life? And I think it, it's when you start looking at your advertising budget as a way of adding value to your audience instead of just interrupting them with nonsense, mm. that's when digital becomes a good opportunity. And you're like, you know, we've talked about brands that are doing it well. So people like like Red Bull and GoPro, they've cracked it. It's not, you know, sure enough, if you're talking about toilet paper, it is tougher. But there are still brands that have done great stuff. So Charmin out of the US mm. created an app that helped you find the nicest public toilets. It, it's not an enduring success. You know, it's not something that's going to be <laughs> <laughs> talked about forever. But it was a sensible thing to do, you know. You, right. you, you, you mobile app that tells you in New York. But what else, could, I mean, come on, what else could they have done? Uh, no, when you're getting you're getting into creative here, and it's a right. Exactly. Can you imagine? I mean, that would be the obvious thing that you would have done in that situation. What else could they? They they, they really didn't have much choice, did they? Well, I disagree. So I, I'm going to be inappropriate here. This is the sort of thing that this brand maybe doesn't want to do. But if you think about what you use toilet paper for, there are an awful lot of analogies that you can make about cleaning up shit. And I think that. I've, Brand with a good sense of humor right. could take that and go, there's an awful lot of shit on the internet. Let, we're going to help clean it. You know, it, it, it All right, Simon's it. for hire, everybody. If you, want, if you need a creative director. Creative ideas. I don't think he's going to win any awards, though. 
Yeah, I don't think that's going to take me to Cannes somehow. But, you know, it's like, I think that the problem is that brands always want to talk about their products and yeah. not the value that those products contribute to people's lives. You don't need to talk about your product. You just need to understand the value that you add and where that's relevant and how you can broaden out to deliver that through your marketing activities. Mm. So, you know, we talk, we, we talk about the reports that I produce an awful lot of the time. I make those available for free because people need numbers to make decisions. Mm. Now, I could charge for those reports, but I use them as a way of raising awareness of what I do and then getting in front of the right kinds of people. And it, it's that kind of adding value. If I kept on pumping out reports that tell, told people about what I do for a living, I don't think that as many people would read them. <laughs> mm. you, you have to, I mean, you, you've got to win their attention first and then... Yeah build trust once you have that attention and then you, you you can sell to them you know back in the day if you were advertising on tv that itself was a trust builder because not everybody could do that i mean it cost you a lot of money to advertise 30 seconds on tv so therefore the only people that could advertise were the people who had money therefore people were buying their products therefore they were trustworthy right but today yeah. Anybody can do it. Therefore, advertising does isn't a trust builder in itself. So the only way to build trust mm. is like what you're doing is to put stuff out there for free. So it's why people have to give away stuff for free now because you have to win people's attention. It's the, you know it's the bigger, biggest cost in marketing today, and I think yeah. that's the challenge, isn't it, that brands have. It's not just free. I think there's, there's an important clarification there. As long as you're adding value. So you look at Nike, right? Um, Nike, Nike. I can never remember. Nike. How you Nike. It is Nike, actually. But anyway, let's call it Nike for fun. It is Nike. It's the goddess Nike. <laughs> is it? Right. Nike it is. Um, <laughs> Come on, uh, I'm stand by it. Go on. I'm Scottish Nike. So they put on 10-kilometer runs around the world. Yeah. They put on these events where we pay $150 to participate. It's a marketing event, but we pay to take part in it because it adds value to us. Mm. And I think that this is the bit. If you can work out what is it that people really want from you, Nike isn't Nike isn't selling mm-hmm. running shoes, really. Nike is helping you to get fit, or Nike is helping you to lead a certain kind of lifestyle. And if they make it easier for you to actually keep up with the promises that you've made to yourself or to live that lifestyle, then that's the value that you really want. I don't want to buy a pair of shoes. I want to be able to go running and keep to my New Year's resolution or whatever else it is. And I think that's what's really interesting. I would love to see a situation where they gave the shoes away for free if mm. you turn up for the event that you pay this for. So, you know, they, they do it with the, um, the the T-shirts that you get, and especially in places like Singapore where people wear these T-shirts even when they're going out shopping on a Saturday. You know, you've got all these people that took part in a marathon and they're wearing their marathon T-shirt. And it's, it's heavily branded and they paid a significant amount of money to take part in this and get the T-shirt, which is part yeah. of the fee. And I think, you know, that kind of approach to marketing of what is the value that we're helping with the product is usually something that fits within a broader piece of lifestyle right so even food is an ingredient that goes into a meal i'm not buying this i'm buying i'm not going to mcdonald's just to fill my stomach you know i'm going there for a social event with friends or whatever else it may be and it's it's understanding the real value that people are buying and not just the products that you're producing Mm. so i'm gonna i'm gonna steal a quote from my client so a guy used to work with intel who said it's not what you make that matters it's what you make happen and i think that's absolutely brilliant mm. so I people think, don't buy stuff they buy what stuff does for them hmm, absolutely and i think a lot of the time most advertising is just talking about the stuff that people make well we've seen that i mean you know we've seen that if we go back to like you say mcdonald's hmm. if you look at fast retail if you seen that story with starbucks coming into asia and that was a really fascinating story that as a case study, because what happened was, is when Howard Schultz came to Japan, 
he first looked at Japan and people Japan didn't have a coffee culture it had the old mm. Kisaten coffee shops which was like these old pokey coffee shops yeah. where people smoked and he said like I want to put Starbucks in Japan and people say no it won't work we drink tea um, you know you have to smoke and it's like no 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 right it's going to be like this and they, they basically didn't listen to anything that the, the <laughs> local consultants who happened to be McKinsey actually said and they Ouch. just um, they, they brought it in and it was exactly the same as Starbucks from Seattle and they dropped it in Japan and the reason why it was so successful is exactly what you said is that you know people didn't go to Starbucks to drink coffee they went to yeah. Starbucks to hang out it was the social space that yeah. Starbucks created and th that was you know it just goes to show because if, if you looked at the demographic data you know and you said oh well you know as I hear a lot when people go into Asian countries we're different here well actually you're probably not as different as you'd like to think you know th there are sort of you know, there are flavors, if you like, of the brand. And there's a, a slightly different menu, if you like. But at the end of the day, people, you know, need other people. People feel lonely. And that's why, yeah. you know, Japan is the most profitable Starbucks in the world because, you know, that's possibly one of the loneliest populations in the world for, you know, what we talked about in previous Digital mm. Lives Asia. But, and, and the same thing, like the biggest Starbucks has just opened in the world in Shanghai for the same reason. Like, you know, you've got millions and millions of people coming there to hang out and find some community, right? And it's not yeah. about, you know, coffee because you can get it cheaper at McDonald's. Totally. It's not a, a, you're not looking for a functional solution to a problem here. This is a very emotional kind of thing and it's much bigger than the product itself. And, you know, I think there's an awful lot of that, whether it's high tech, even when you're buying business solutions, mm. even when procurement come in and try and make your life difficult and say it's got to be the X, Y and Z. Ultimately, there is still going to be an emotion at play, whether it's fear, whether it's whatever it may be. And I think it's understanding motivations and emotions are the most important part of telling these stories and tying this carefully back to our. So where does this fit in with the numbers thing? I think that that's the problem with an awful lot of the way that marketing is approaching stats at the moment is that they take the numbers as gospel. So knowing that this many 18-year-olds use Facebook means that we've got to target 18-year-olds on mm. Facebook instead of saying, what can we learn about 18-year-olds and their motivations by looking at what they do on Facebook? So social listening was the world's most squandered opportunity when it comes to marketing. Unfortunately, it's just, it's more what difficult. Social listening is what? The most squandered opportunity oh, in well, marketing. What is it? So social listening is where, especially when you look at public channels like Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that, the ability to go in and look at what people care about. Right, you can still okay. do this on things like Instagram. You can still do it on Twitter, but Twitter is a bit more of a, a less representative audience, shall we say. It's people at the, the edges mm -hmm. that are using Twitter. Um, but if you look at Instagram, for example, so my favorite example of this is hashtag love, which is the most used hashtag Aww. on isn't it great? Yeah. And then you think, right, what do people love? And I went... Starbucks. I, I went through this. Starbucks is one of the top things. You're not wrong. But it's fascinating. An awful lot of Coffee, people posting love. They love things, but they also love themselves. It's amazing <laughs> how many selfies are posted with hashtag right. love. Well, isn't and that true? Turns, it turns out that an awful lot of people are looking for love. And then you start to go, ah, oh, now it starts to get interesting. And it's this is the bit is that marketers use data to talk about themselves mm. instead of using data to understand the people that they want to influence better. It's just it's so much of marketing is back to front. It's so incredibly selfish. And all you need to do is just spend a little bit of time going out, looking at your audience, thinking, what do they care about and how can I give it to them in ways right. that help me achieve what I want as well? That's... 
Yeah, it's the most obvious thing in the world. If you remember when you were a kid, the most attractive traits in other people, when you were learning about what the girls like and what the boys like, generosity always came out as one of the top things. Mm. There's no reason why we shouldn't be using our marketing budgets to be generous. You know, it doesn't mean giving products away. It means adding value to people, whether it's even something as obvious as entertaining advertising or whether it's providing reports that people can use in their own work or whatever it may be. Generosity. Use your marketing budget to add value. I've, I've gone on my high horse here, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, but I think it, it, it's appropriate. That whole thing about understanding consumers and even using the word consumer, I suppose, is inappropriate, isn't it? Is that, you know, getting out there and just being with them. And I, I guess this, this is the problem, isn't it? Is that when you give people digital tools to understand, quote unquote, your people, your, your buyers, is mm. that it, all that really does at the end of the day is it removes you one extra step away from that person. Yeah. But if you look, for example, like the most successful brands like Apple, for example, mm-hmm. you know, 62% of Apple's employees in the US worked in the Apple store. So it's a retail brand more than anything, yeah. right? And what made that successful was is that they spent all their time in store talking to grandma about the iPad, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. you, you want to know what people really care about is spend time with them. And that's that whole empathy yeah. thing right and i think you yeah. know this is i saw it just as an example you know th- there's been a lot of news recently about grab and uber in southeast asia right and mm-hmm. obviously uber has now sold its interest to grab and just out of it just here's what's interesting people are saying you know i don't know if they read too much in it you know why uber didn't work and why grab was successful is because if you were an, an uber driver for example you would spend all your hours and i think you, you'd have to drive non-stop to rack up points like the, mm. to, to gain the algorithm you would have to just keep driving 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 which is fine but you know you don't you don't have to have a break but what grab did whether this is true or not whether this is a big sort of break point is that they realized that a lot of their drivers especially in southeast asia were muslim and they had to break for an hour to pray mm-hmm. you know and some some cases they pray five times a day if they were like strict muslims but it would take somebody who knew what your your customers your users would want to put that into the system to make that effective rather than somebody who would go back to the demographics and try and analyze that you would never see that right Mm. so it's that empathy thing and it doesn't come from numbers it comes from spending time in their shoes just out there right but if you're a marketer you say i didn't do an mba to talk to people (laughs) (laughs) yeah don't get me wrong, I love numbers, as you know, stats into stories, but there's a reason why we do stats into stories, is that the numbers are the start, not the end, and I think you can use numbers to tell you what the better questions you should be asking are, so if you were Uber and you looked at the data and said, why do we have so few drivers on the road at lunchtime on a Friday, well, here we go, here's your answer, it's because they're at prayers. I think there's all sorts of other reasons why Grab made uh, faster inroads, terrible pun. Um, they just sort of, you know, you've got huge numbers of taxis on the road in Singapore, but what Grab did was it allowed you to book a taxi across any of the different companies. So what you were already doing, and you could just do it through a single app, and they just had a very simple business model, which I think was mm-hmm. brilliant. Now they've, they've branched into Uber territory where they've got drivers that are just drivers now as well, but you still book your taxi in the same way. And I think it's, it's just sort of going in and looking at what is the the value that people need. So I don't want an Uber and I don't want a Grab. What I want is to get from A to B in comfort. And if you are in 
increasing the convenience or increasing the comfort or reducing the cost of that convenience and comfort, then you are providing value and I'll move quite quickly. I think it's that bit. So when, when we asked about at the beginning of the show, see what I, did, I feel like Billy Connolly, I'm generally bringing things back to the bit at the start of the conversation. But the bit at the start of the conversation about whether people would stop using Facebook or not, the answer is that this is an ingrained behavior that still adds value to mm. them. And at the moment, there is nothing that does it better. That isn't a permanent situation. That may change overnight. But the reason that Facebook isn't disappearing anytime fast is because it is still adding value to our lives. We may yeah. not want to admit that, <laughs> but it's still a big part of staying in touch with friends and family. And I don't think it's going to change, is it? I think no, it's fascinating. Not soon. Absolutely. It's fascinating. It, it is, you know, a facet of our life and it ain't going away anytime soon. But I, I would be really interested to see how it's changing qualitatively, right, over time. Yes. Right? And I think we're, today was really about that, wasn't it? How that's starting mm. to shift. And we, we've, we've talked a bit about how advertising is changing as well. So there is a shift. I don't think it's enough of a shift to call it at the moment. But, no. you know, I think if we were to have this conversation in a year's time, th there'd be something quite tangible, isn't it? There'll definitely be not necessarily a change on the, the user side, as you mentioned, because we'll still be doing it. There'll be a change on the advertising side, the, the marketer's side when it comes to digital and Facebook. I think the ramifications would have come through. Facebook, I think, would have made changes. They're already responding to what's going on. Mm. I think it's going to have an impact. I would hope that the marketers change. I've been sort of bashing people over the head yeah. for the last seven years trying to get them to change it, it it's I, look i like i said i confess that it's it's easy when you're me and you spend your time thinking about this but when it's five minutes of your week and you've got other challenges to deal with it's unfair to expect people to move quickly yeah. but nonetheless people are unfortunately still wasting a lot of money doing the wrong thing so let's hope in a year when we come back and revisit this let's yeah. set ourselves a schedule now appointment to chat in may in 2019 on the the changing face of marketing you heard it here <laughs> Digital Lives Asia, Graham Brown and Simon Kemp. Simon, thank you for sharing your insights. And thank your you again for having me. Sage insights, I should say, and your data as well. Turning those stats into story. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess let's sort of put the call out there for people who are listening and want to ask questions or comment. Best way of doing that, they can tweet us directly, I, I suppose. Um, yes, your absolutely. Your Twitter handle, Simon? Eskimon, so E-S-K-I-M-O-N. Get me there on LinkedIn with the same thing as well. If you just do a search for that, you'll find my nice black and white photo. That's me. Yep. That's the chat. And you, um, I think as well, I mean, let's sort of get people to ask questions. I mean, if they have questions about some of the data. Simon, Simon's always publishing data. He's like, he does it in his sleep. So, <laughs> you know, if you have questions about those, let's sort of, you know, take those questions to this conversation as well. We'll try to fold yeah. them into, if we have a particular theme that we're talking about and those questions are relevant to that theme, we'll try and fold it into that episode. So. Definitely. We'll try and answer your questions. I would love people to challenge some of that data and say, what do you think this means for me? So if you want to do that, I work in an ice cream brand. Tell me what this means for me. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, we'll yeah. happily have that conversation, won't we? Exactly. I, mean, I think people need to know we don't have all the answers, do we? So, you know, it's not like <laughs> it's a conversation that we need to have. Okay. Simon, thank you so much. Thanks, Graham. Speak to you again soon. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.